Hi, I'm Raphael Honigstein, and you're listening to the Bavarian Podcast Works. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Bavarian Podcast Works show. My name is Jake Fenner. I am joined by Tom Adams. Tom, how are you doing? on this fine, fine Tuesday evening. I'm doing well. I just finished stuffing my face with a grilled chicken wrap from one of my favorite local joints, supporting local business. And you know what? I sunk my teeth into it, and we have quite a bit of news to sink our teeth into on this podcast, Jake. That we do, that we do. Now, we are going to touch on a couple of very important things, including Marco Royce's comments about the refereeing in Der Klassica. We also get to a bunch of your questions that you sent to us using the hashtag AskBPW, but more important news must come first. It was announced earlier today that Bundestrainer, head coach, of the German national team, Joachim Löw, is stepping down from his position after the Euro 2021 tournament is finished. What this means is that Germany will have to go into a string of World Cup qualification with the hopes of making the tournament that is set to start in November 2022 under a new head coach and under new management. So, Tom, I want to hear your thoughts first. I obviously have my own. Uh, What was your reaction to this news? Well, my reaction was just more so surprised at the timing. Although I think a lot of us, Jake, I know you and I can agree. I know a lot of our listeners can agree, uh, as well as German fans throughout the world can agree that this decision, uh, we all would have expected it to have come much soon, whether it was much sooner, I should say, whether it was Love making the decision himself or getting pressure from the DFB. But as we all know, even after the calamitous World Cup in Russia and after the failed UEFA Nations League campaign shortly thereafter, in all of the terrible results that Germany has had since then, especially the 6-0 against Spain, you know, I think that we all thought that this situation would have presented itself much, much sooner. And I think that's what we all wanted. But... With the news today, I I should kind of retract a little bit. I should say I'm not as much shocked. Um, I believe his contract with the German national team did run through 2023 or 2022. Jake, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But I think we all knew that this was going to be the last tournament uh, where he really had a chance to either go out on a high note or crash and burn, so to speak. So I think from his perspective... Uh, and from the DFB's perspective, this is kind of the best of both worlds because he's jumped the gun. It's We're several months out now from the European Championships, and he's announced that he's going to step down after the, the tournament. So whether Germany does terribly, well, obviously we hope that doesn't happen. We don't want another repeat of Russia 2018, but whether they don't do uh, as they expect, because let's remember they're in a group, Jake, with Hungary, but also France and Portugal. So this is not going to be an easy task for Germany to get out of the group, uh, albeit go further uh, in the tournament and, and go go far and perhaps get to the final. But you have that wiggle room now that Dave Bay can say, okay, we now know that there's going to be a succession after Love. He'll be gone after this tournament. So naturally we everyone can kind of 
hang that hat up on the hook, so to speak. There's not this lingering doom and gloom and controversy that always surrounded the DFB and Yakim Love for what seems like the past two years, even though it really seems like much, much longer than that. So now we have that clarity, Jake, and we can kind of look forward and say, okay, something that we all wanted to happen, yes, it's coming much, much later than we would have liked, but we can say for certain that it is going to happen now, so let's get behind Germany, let's get behind the boys, and uh, at the same time, it, it does seem as if Love is going to budge and bring Thomas Müller back into the squad for this summer's uh, championship. So I, I think it's kind of a blessing in disguise for what it's worth. I know there's a lot of people out there listening that might disagree with me. You know, they're still just going to go on and on about how this decision should have come much, much longer or much, much sooner. But it is what it is. Um I wasn't getting out of bed any day this week saying to myself, "Oh, I'm really expecting Love to come out with this announcement." I thought it might have would have I thought it probably was going to happen personally after the tournament itself. Uh but he's made the choice whether there was a lot of pressure from the DFB uh internally to have him make this announcement. I'm unsure of, but that remains to be seen. That might not be for us to discuss, but yeah, big news for, for all of us, for German fans, especially for us at BFW. And uh, I know our Slack channel went into a bit of a frenzy very, very early this morning, East Coast time, because obviously the six-hour time difference. But, Jake, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this one. My thoughts are relatively your thoughts. I've not really pulled any punches in my previous discussions about Yogi Löw. I recognize how important of a manager he is. And he deserves all of his flowers that he gets for winning the 2014 World Cup and being able to turn the team around after Jurgen Klinsmann left in 2006. And with all of that being said, I think that I still would have liked for him to have stepped down following the 2018 World Cup fiasco. Ever since then, he has fielded a Germany team and has coached a Germany team that has not been its best, especially considering the quality of players that Germany puts out. It's a bit disappointing. So I'm very relieved by the news that he is going to leave and not that we have to wait for a disastrous performance at the Euros in order for him to leave, because as you said, it is a very tough group that this German national team is going to have to face. So to me, to have him announce that he's already leaving takes a little bit of pressure off of the team itself. It takes a little bit of pressure off of the DFB to kind of ride all of their hopes on Yogi Löw and... Now that he is set to go, there can be a smoother transition to somebody better suited currently to take over the position of uh, head coach of Die Mannschaft, uh, Bundes trainer. And I think whoever it's going to be uh, is going to have a lot of institutional support. But whoever it is, it is going to be a tough task for them going forward. And of course, uh, Yogi's replacement is going to be named before the Euros. It was announced earlier today. Uh, we do not know who that would be, but that basically effectively eliminates Jurgen Klopp, who already removed himself from the running earlier today, but he said that he didn't have any plans as of right now 
for leaving for the summer. Now, I love Jurgen Klopp and would love for him to coach Die Mannschaft, but at the same time, I totally agree that he probably has better things on his plate because transitioning from the club game to the national team game are two relatively different things. And if you're a guy that's been at the club level for so long, you're going to want to stay at that club level. So for Jurgen Klopp to say that he wants to stay there, that makes perfect sense. He just came off of winning a Champions League two years ago with Liverpool. He just won the uh, the Premier League last year with Liverpool. So it, it kind of makes a lot of sense. And if you contrast that with Jurgen Klopp, or sorry, with Joachim Löw, he doesn't have that similar kind of resume that Jurgen Klopp does, right? He went from Mainz to Dortmund to now he's at Liverpool, right? Yogi Löw spent a couple years at Stuttgart, then he went to Fernbacha, then he went to Karlsruhe, then at Danaspor, then from 2001 to 2004 he was in Austria, and then from 2004 till now he was the assistant and then the head coach of the German national team so he's been out of the club game for a little while so it makes sense to want to put somebody in charge who either wants to get out of the club game or is transitioning into the latter stages of their careers which is why I don't think that Julian Nagelsmann would be a good choice or nor do I think that he's going to make that choice because I think Julian Nagelsmann's talents go beyond the German national team in that they only play a couple of times a year, whereas Nagelmann, Nagelsmann's intellect deserves to be put on full display the entire time. And that brings me to what we saw earlier this morning in terms of the odds for who is going to be named. Uh, Hansi Flick's name was not mentioned. The current front runner is current Germany U21 manager Stefan Kuntz at 1-4 to four odds. Jurgen Klopp was second, but that was before the announcement that he was removing himself from the running. Uh, Arsene Wenger at 8-1 to one is now the second favorite to take over the German national team job. Followed by Nagelsmann at 12-1, to one, Jurgen Klinsmann at 12-1. to one. Good God. And then Jupp Heinkes. Oh, my Lord. Frau Heinkes must be utterly devastated to see her husband's name there uh, yet again. Uh, a couple of names not in that list. Uh, Thomas Tuchel kind of makes sense. He just took a job at Chelsea. He's not going to go ahead and leave Chelsea right now to go back to uh, to the German national team. Uh, currently unemployed manager Ralph Ranić is not on there. And then Hansi Flick was not mentioned either. So, Tom, who do you like? to be the next head coach of the German national team? Well, for all the reasons that you just mentioned, this question has so many moving parts. I actually do think that Flick is in consideration. I know that uh, Sport 1 had put out a piece earlier where they had basically re-referenced the fact that Karl-Heinz Rummenigge in an interview not too long ago had said that Hansi Flick eventually moving to Die Mannschaft was a non-issue for him and that they would not stand in the way of this. So... Part of me feels that Hansi Flick is. Uh, I remember when, like, first reading the news, like when I'm first waking up and you know sifting through Twitter, you know, all of the main sources that we like to 
look for stories on, you know, at BFW, it, it seemed as if, obviously, as you said before, Klopp made the announcement because there was a little bit of a gap between Joachim Love's announcement and Jurgen Klopp taking himself out of the running. Uh, it seemed as if the two favorites were Klopp and Hansi Flick, but obviously one of those in Klopp has taken himself out of the conversation with a very, uh, you know, direct statement saying, I'm, that's, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to fulfill my contract in Liverpool, which I believe runs through 2025 or 2024. I, I can't recall off the top of my head. I know people that know I'm a Liverpool fan are probably going to do my head in for that one, uh, but neither here nor there. Um, so I'm not necessarily certain that Hansi Flick isn't a candidate. I would find it odd that there's no other indication from anywhere, especially at Bayern, remember, who is nicknamed FC Hollywood. It seems like every, unless it's a transfer on deadline day after a global pandemic like we saw this year with Buanasar, Douglas Costa, Eric Maxime Chapo-Motang, you know, players that Flick would not necessarily have gone for himself. We always seem to hear about something. You know, how much did we hear about Leroy Sané? How much did we hear about Luca Hernandez, Benjamin Pavard, all of these signings before we made them? Uh, you know, we seem to always get a sniff of something that's going to happen, whether it's personnel in the squad, the front office, Bayern supervisory board, uh, the hierarchy, what have you. So I, I really, all I would have to go off of for linking Hansi Flick to the Dimanschaft job would be Karl-Heinz Rummenigge saying he wouldn't stand in the way and that he wouldn't see it as impossible. Um, for me, that's not enough to go off of. And I think that Bayern's board realizes uh, how devastated a lot of Bayern fans would be if Hansi Flick were to leave after this season, right? Because the DFB have come out and said, obviously the decision is going to be announced prior to the European Championships beginning, and they didn't really give an indication. You know, Does that mean in April? Does that mean in May? Uh, because... We're almost midway through March now, and the tournament itself starts in June. And the rosters and the squads for the European Championships, really in the scheme of things, are not that far away. Obviously, in football terms, a lot can happen between now and then. But, Jake, it's really not that far away. So, for me, um, I think that we'd have more indication if Flick was in the running. So, I just kind of had to clarify that. And as a Bayern fan, I would love for him to stay at Bayern a little bit longer. And because of all of those things, I think that naturally the interim capacity, so to speak, you know, air quotes there, would be best suited by Stefan Kuntz, who currently had been serving as the German U21 manager. I think if it were something else, we would have heard something of all the managers that you had just listed. You know, Ralf Ranić was in there, Arsene Wenger, Jupp Heynckes, Jürgen Klinsmann. Uh, I mean, there's a laundry list of names in the beginning of the day, Eastern Standard Time here in the U.S. that, you know, that were being discussed. And personally, for me, keeping everything realistic and bringing a little bit of my bias filter into that, I think Kuntz would be a good in an interim capacity, whether it's one year or two years. And ideally, I would love for Hansi Flick to take over that position after he is done. I'm, I was thinking about this in my mind, Jake. Roberto Martinez comes to mind having coached in the Premier League and then gone to coach Belgium, obviously, <clears throat> on the international stage. But I'm not sure if any manager has gone from an or a national team capacity back to club and then back to national team again. I don't know if Hansi Flick would be the first person to do so. 
Uh, like I said, Martinez is one of the only people that pops in my head, though he didn't quite do that exact order, club uh, and then to the national team. So it'd be interesting for me uh, if that does happen. Obviously, Flick spent so much time as Yachim Love's assistant. But so naturally, I would think, let's say we'll take a nice round number, two years after the Euros at least, or a year and a half to two years, Hansi Flick takes over Die Mannschaft. And then the natural succession that I would love is to see Julian Nagelsmann come and take over at Bayern Munich from RB Leipzig. For me, I see that as realistic and I see that as something that I personally would want the most, especially since Klopp has taken himself out of the running. But of course, you know, we don't know everything. There's a lot that can happen. We've been shocked before, so I would not be surprised the the least bit if I'm completely wrong in everything that I've said. All right, I just double-checked on the most recent odds, uh, and I'll grab them again. Uh, Ladbrokes gave us the first odds, so uh, this time we went through Betfair via TalkSport. Uh, they pegged Stefan Kuntz as 2-1 to one, and then Klopp at 3-1. to one. Uh, Nagelsmann at 6-1. to one. They have Hansi Flick at eight to one odds to uh, to replace him. Jurgen Klinsmann, oh god, Jurgen Klinsmann at ten to one. Arsene Wenger at sixteen to one, and at twenty to one, Christian Strike, of all managers to have Christian Strike uh, linked with this job, is insane to me uh i have counter strike demon shop now that you say that i'm a little bit disappointed that he didn't pop into my head when i was thinking of this no jake are these odds are those based only from the uk that they're or is this all of is this the uk and the eu that they're pulling from i believe this is just from betfair uh i got this via talk sport which is a uk outlet so it might be just from Europe. So here's my person, right? Allow me, hear me out. Ralph Hazenhutel. That is who I want to see become the new manager of the German national team. For those that are unaware, he is Austrian. He was a former striker. He used to play for Austria Wein, Austria Salzburg, FC Köln for a couple of years. Greuther Firth, towards the end of his career, 51 games, 13 goals for them, and then spent a couple of years in the twilight of his career at FC Bayern 2. Uh, 57 appearances, 14 goals for them. I believe that was the third most goals he had ever scored in his entire career at a club. So that's uh, interesting to hold on to. He was at Ingolstadt for a couple of years when they got promoted up to... uh, up to the Bundesliga for their first time ever. Uh, he won the Zweite Liga crown with them in the 2014-15 season. He secured survival for them, but decided instead of staying at Ingolstadt to go to East Germany and bring RB Leipzig up to the top flight. He was able to do that through a second-place finish. He went up with the team for the first time in their history. And then he was replaced by Julian Nagelsmann. And then ever since then, he was appointed at Southampton to replace Mark Hughes. He's the first Austrian to ever be a manager in the Premier League. 
and he's been having a bit of a rough go at it. But keeping in mind that Tom's team likes to take absolutely every single good player from Southampton and bring them to Liverpool, uh, I don't necessarily blame him. But keeping in mind, right, resurgent form from Danny Ings, he's got James Ward-Prowse, Nathan Redmond, right? He's got a couple of pretty good players, not anybody that would make a consistent England squad, I guess, outside of Danny Ings. I, yeah, I think that Ralph Hazenhutel would be a great person to take over the German national team. He's a gegenpressing disciple. Uh, He's been referred to a couple of times as the Alpine Jurgen Klopp. So to me, I don't know if Ralph Hazenhutel has any deep desire to stay at Southampton, constantly in a relegation battle when he came in he was able to keep the team up in 16th last season he brought them up to 11th just ahead of Everton and this season so far they've been having a tough go at it they're in 14th as of right now they made it to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup so that's pretty good but to me even though he has a contract signed to stay at the club until 2024 I think it would not be a bad idea to bring in a manager that is well-known to a number of players on this squad, right? Because if he played for FC Bayern 2, at that point, um, Thomas Müller would have known about him. Uh, With Leipzig, right, you've got uh, Timo Werner, Lucas Klostermann, Marcel Helstenberg that have worked with him. So he's got his hands in a number of different pots in Germany. And I think that he would be a good person to take over for this team. Because I don't know if going with the interim model is a good idea. Because keep this in mind, this is not a normal year. The Euros are this year, and then next November, we have a World Cup. So you can't exactly go with the model of having an interim manager for World Cup qualifying, because World Cup qualifying lasts for two months, and then you're at the World Cup that year. So whoever is getting hired needs to be a manager that can come in quickly and effectively get things done and be able to turn things around on a dime. And when I hear that, my brain thinks of a person who is able to take a Southampton team, bring them all together, and pull them out of the pits of relegation to keep them in the Premier League. So to me, I like Hazenhutel. They're not going to get him because they're going to go with somebody else because no one ever listens to me, but that is okay. I have already said my piece. I think Hazenhutel would be a great decision, not to mention, right? Almost kind of similar resume to your, to uh, Joachim Löw. Unterhaking, Ehlen, Ingolstadt, Leipzig, Southampton. Right, you can argue that Southampton is a big team and Leipzig is a big team, and I would return with yes, they are big teams, and the Stuttgart team that uh, Joachim Löw man- managed was also a pretty big team, but he didn't manage a lot of teams. Not to mention, uh, 
Jokic managed in Austria, and Ralph Hasenhutl is Austrian. So there you go. There's there's your automatic connection there. So that is my thought. That is where we are going to wrap up this discussion, and we are going to move on to talk about some comments that were made from a certain somebody at the weekend. Bayern winning 4-2 against Borussia Dortmund at the weekend. Important thing happened immediately after the match, and mostly centered around uh, Dortmund captain uh, Marco Reus, someone who I love despite the fact that he wears uh, the black and yellow for uh, for Borussia Dortmund. He was a little angry after the match, after the third goal was not called back because of a perceived foul from Leroy Sané onto Emre Chan in the middle of the field that happened a, about like 30 seconds before Leon Goretzka was able to take a shot. Royce's comment was, quote, I'll be honest, if it were against Bayern, the referee would have whistled 100%. It is like that, nothing to add. When he said if it were against Bayern, that means if the foul was from Dortmund onto Bayern. Uh, Emre Chan didn't make any similar comments, uh, but the DFB responded back to Royce's comments uh, saying, quote, the decision of the referee is appropriate. VAR did not have to intervene since several Dortmund players were on the ball between the challenge and the goal, and it no longer was the same attacking situation. This game management certainly did not deserve the criticism, which was certainly exaggerated in the form of disappointment. So, on one hand, I can understand why Dortmund fans are angry, right? It's a 50-50 challenge. I wouldn't be angry if the referee called it on Zane. Uh, otherwise, it just looks like a normal shoulder-to-shoulder challenge, at least to me. And then more importantly, there was a lot of time in between that tackle and the goal being scored. More importantly, right? you should not blame the ref for failing to whistle a foul on Leroy Sané. You should be pissed at Thomas Meunier for not being able to clear the ball better and not being able to have his head on a swivel, being able to clear it away from Leon Goretzka because the ball fell to Goretzka, right? It's not like Dortmund did not have any chances to touch the ball or defend the ball. It wasn't like Chan was fouled just inside the 18-yard box and it was like a one-on-one chance with the keeper. No, there was a lot of time between that foul and the goal. Enough time that an impact on the game could have been made. So I personally agree with the DFB and with the officials that I think that was the right call. I think it's 50-50 call, but if you're not going to call it, that is fine. I'd be more angry about the the non-given penalty, which I had a comment underneath the the podcast episode of somebody telling me to stop repeatedly saying that I thought that that was a penalty, but you know what? I think it was, but I'll add this. If you're not going to call that a penalty because it was from the outside of the box, that's fine. 
but it's at least a foul. <laughs> it's at least a foul. It's at least a free kick from around 19, 20 yards out. Uh, to not call a penalty is unfortunate. To not call a stoppage in play and a free kick is, I think, a little more insane. But those are two different scenarios. Tom, take that and run with it. If you want to talk about both, you can go ahead and do that. But first, what do you think of Royce's comments? What do you think of the DFB responding to them? Well, uh, Jake, I have to agree with you. I think the DFB was pretty much spot on in their response to him, but I could easily see the frustration from Royce's perspective, you know, it being a, a Derek Classiker big match against Bayern that actually meant quite a bit because we all know that prior to this kicking off Leipzig had one in Freiburg which provisionally took them to the top of the table and uh, we have to remember that Dortmund are on the fringes of clawing their way back into a European spot uh, with the resurgence that they've had but uh, you know it's just telling to me it I don't always want to bring in my personal uh, afflictions to this but having seen so much of Emre Chant during his time at Liverpool. I think it's funny that he was kind of, or I should say he was the one involved in the incident that Royce was fuming about. And he had a very, very different response than Marco Royce did. When he was asked about the incident, he essentially just said it could be a foul, but it doesn't have to be. And to me, I'm just kind of thinking back to a lot of incidents surrounding Emre Chant during his time at Liverpool. You know, uh, times where he was stomped on by Diego Costa when he was at Chelsea and nothing was called and him getting up and reacting. Very uh, rash challenges that Emre Chan had made himself. You know, I think he's definitely a player who can sometimes let his temper get the better of him and, you know, resulting in very dangerous tackles, yellow cards, red cards, uh, you know, giving away dangerous free kicks and that sort of thing. So that to me is is kind of telling. Jake, I agree with you too. It's kind of a 50-50 and there's so much that transpired in between that incident and Leon Goretzka's volley itself. I mean, there was just so many things that happened. Uh, and by the rule of law, that's technically why VAR did not have to intervene in that situation. Even after they had looked at Marco Royce's uh, potential handball, I believe it was in the first half, uh, in my opinion, a player of his stature and of his veteranship should know better than to even put his arm out like that and try and play the ball in the fashion that he did especially being in the box so I just think a lot of this is, is frustration I think if he had maybe been pressed by the media or asked for a statement a little bit later than he was he might have said something different uh, because I think the officiating crew overall for the match that it was did a very decent job of keeping control and, and getting the decisions right for the most part it seems like every week whether it be the Bundesliga the Premier League uh, Ligue 1 or La Liga, there's always a controversial decision that's you know kind of the talk of the match week, so to speak, and especially in the Premier League. I know that a lot of listeners, uh, for us who have been consistent, know that I'm a Liverpool fan as well, and they're miles ahead of anyone else in the Premier League at having VAR decisions go against them, so there's not really any empathy or sympathy, I guess. I don't want that to sound too harsh or too rude, but like been there, done that, and I know a lot of Bayern fans will remember in the first installment of Derek Lasker this season, you know, or sorry, I should say the second, not the DFL Super Cup, but the first Bundesliga meeting, we had a goal disallowed for a very, very, very marginal offside decision. There was actually two goals disallowed. 
One of which was a bit more clear. I think it was Lewandowski's left leg that was clearly offside. The other, Jake, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was Leroy Sané's, like maybe a smidge of one of his studs was offside, which was very, very marginal. We still wound up winning 3-2. So calls can go either way. This particular incident being the one that he chose to really uh, fume and, and, and pick a bone with is, is a little bit unfair to me, giving, given, you know, the amount of stuff that transpired from that incident to the goal. Uh, the the nature of the challenge, it was very 50-50. As you said, Jake, like Emre Chan had said, sometimes it's given, sometimes it's not. Y- you can't let that be something that's going to get under your skin and, you know, let that... It's not as if Royce is saying this is what decided the match, but I get it. It changes the narrative at that point. If Bayern don't score the third goal, things could go a lot different. But as we know, a fourth went in too. So I think anyone who watched the game would also say that at that point, Bayern were really on the front foot and Dortmund had kind of gone back inside their shell after playing so impressively well for the opening uh, 10 to 15 minutes of this match and even in other phases of the first half. So that's where I rest. It's it's funny. You know, the DFA isn't exactly a governing body that's covered itself in glory in the past 24 uh, to whatever months, but I, I agree with their statement. I think they were right in what they said, and I think even Royce knows it now too. I wouldn't be surprised if he comes out uh, and potentially apologizes or kind of uh, you know, rescinds a little bit of what he said. That's just where I stand on that, Jake. So with that, we are going to go ahead and get into our questions that were submitted to us using the hashtag AskBPW. We have a lot. We are going to get to them, Tom. Get started. All right, and thanks again, guys. It just seems that every time we go to send out and ask BPW, you guys are just right on the spot. And not only that, the questions are good. So I think, Jake, we have to really say thank you to our followers on Twitter and our listeners. Not only is it quantity or quality over quantity, we have both, which is a which is an amazing luxury to have. So thanks again, guys. And with that said, let's dive right into the questions. So the first one being, there's a lot of controversy with this, given the different quarantine rules in Germany and the UK and other countries. And it comes from at Jason Poulton CFP. And they ask, with other Bundesliga teams having to play Champions League games in Budapest, Hungary, is there any concern about that happening to Bayern on the 17th for the second leg against Lazio? I think the main concern is less about teams coming to play in Germany and more about where they are coming from. I don't exactly know what the rates are in Norway, right, as to why Hoffenheim was forced to play their game against uh, Molde in Villarreal Stadium, and I think they played their second game of that series at Molde's stadium, so... I think that might have actually been more of Norway telling Molde to not go and play in Hoffenheim. But uh, as I recall, the Bayer Leverkusen BSC Young Boys game was played at Leverkusen. The Sevilla game against Borussia Dortmund that takes place on March 9th is going to be played at the Signalajuna Park. So, considering that Bayern is playing Lazio, it could go either way, right? I haven't kept myself up to date with Italy's numbers, but I think that 
for now, I believe everything is set for this game to be played at the Allianz Arena. I'm taking a look at ESPN right now. They have a uh, a page for this game, and uh, right now it says that the game is going to be played at the Allianz Arena. So to me, I don't think it's a big concern. I think it's more about who is playing the team from Germany and not about Germany's rates themselves. So to me, I'm not terribly worried about this. Yeah, specifically, I'm not as worried about the 17th for leg two, just because I think it more has to do with the the German teams traveling and being forced to quarantine based off of the German government's guidelines for coronavirus, which, uh, you know, you get into a lot of interesting topics like UEFA today said that they would be fining RB Leipzig for having to travel away to Budapest to play Liverpool for that second leg, uh, even though the second leg was originally scheduled to take place at Anfield. Um, And additionally, I think it'll be nice too, especially with Bayern having this uh, 4-1 aggregate lead already, uh, to basically put the theory that Budapest is a curse for Bundesliga teams aside. So let's go there. Let's get another win. Let's finish the tie. Let's get into the quarterfinals of the Champions League. We already have one foot in the door. Uh, obviously, we know that Borussia Mönchengladbach and RB Leipzig did not play very well in their first legs uh, at the Puskas Arena. But you know what? The last time we were there, we collected a trophy. So why not play well there again and get another win? And I, I think maybe we could have some concern down the line considering Chelsea are ahead on aggregate over Atletico Madrid. Liverpool obviously ahead on aggregate over RB Leipzig. Uh, and of course, Boris, or why am I drawing a blank now? Of course, yes, Manchester City 2-0 up on aggregate over Borussia Mönchengladbach. So if we do happen to draw a, a UK team, one of the Premier League teams that's left in the competition, then I think uh, we might run into some issues with having to play neutral venues and not being able to travel to the UK without having to quarantine uh, and vice versa. So I think that question more so could have to do with the the further rounds. Uh, obviously, we'll tackle that when we get there, and it's not <laughs> mine and Jake's decision to make. UEFA will have to decide that in addition to the uh, German and UK governments or wherever the team is from when we get to the quarterfinals. But like I said, we will cross that bridge when we get there. All right, thank you for that question. So without further ado, we'll get into the second question. This one comes from at Tokyo XLA Cult. And it's kind of a more of an opinion-based question. And they ask, is Robert Lewandowski given too much credit? He doesn't need to work very hard, doesn't have the quickest pace, and has a team that's built around getting the ball to him as he's the main talisman. His finishing is unquestionable, but we, but we may be better off with Haaland, which is a very, very controversial statement. But Jake, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Ooh. Ain't that something... Um, here's what I'm going to say. I think that Robert Lewandowski is the most highly rated player on this team for good reason. But to say that he should be the highest rated player on this team is a failure to recognize what else this team brings. So I think one can look at Lewandowski's scoring output and say, wow, Lewandowski is a great, great player. He does a lot of individual work in the box, which he does. He does a lot of good dribbling into the box, which he does. He makes dummy runs for others 
which is one thing about his game that really isn't talked about, how he's able to draw defenses towards him and open up paths for other people. Right, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that, oh, Lewandowski doesn't do a lot of things on the ball or even off of the ball because you have players like Thomas Müller doing a lot. You've got the wingers doing a lot as well. You've got Kimik Goretzka doing a lot as well, right? I think you can combine the both of them, and that's really where I sit as as it pertains to this issue. I think Robert Lewandowski is more than deserving of all of the credit he is currently getting. And if anything, I want to see more credit being given towards the people in the midfield and to Gnabry and Coleman and Leroy Sané for what they bring to this team because it's not just a one-man operation, as we all know. Now, in regards to Holland, um, I think Holland has a lot to improve on and a lot to build up on. Like he's good, don't get me wrong, but he's still very young. He's still a very raw talent, and as we all know, he's not going to stay at Borussia Dortmund forever. Um, Holland can run, yes. Is he the fastest player on that Dortmund team? No. Uh, can he finish? Yes. Is he the best finisher? Yes. But there are also many other good finishers on that Dortmund team too. So I think comparing Holland and Lewandowski are two very different things because whereas Holland needs to do a lot on his own, Lewandowski does not need to do the same. Now, when I say that, you can take that in two ways. You could either take that as, oh, Holland is the better player because he does a lot. But the way that I see it is that Lewandowski is the better player because he's in the better system. And the system is built around him helping the team succeed. And because he does that at a rate better than Erling Holland does, and you can just compare the raw numbers, 19 goals for Erling Holland, 31 goals for Robert Lewandowski right? You can say that Lewandowski is the better player because of the system that he's in. And that does make him a better player than Erling Haaland. And it means that he deserves all of the credit that he is currently getting. So that's my thoughts on that. Thomas, what are you thinking? I completely agree with the sentiment, Jake. I don't think it's a matter of Robert Lewandowski getting too much credit because I think he deserves all of the credit that he gets. I mean, the man is unrealistic he's an absolute machine and he's about I should say I don't want to jinx anything I know our Twitter followers get very sensitive with this type of thing as far as jinxes but he's on the verge of breaking a single season Bundesliga scoring record that's been around for decades and you know what he might do it with flying colors and might break the record by some four or five goals at the rate he's scoring I mean, the man is just so assured in front of goal and such a fine-tuned product. And I, I think one very, very overlooked thing by fans, or I should say by people who aren't fans of Bayern Munich, or perhaps even the Bundesliga or don't watch much European competition, is like, the man is in incredible shape. I mean, he hardly misses any matches. He's only rested once this season. He's only come off a handful of times. I remember he came on as a sub against Hoffenheim. But, you know... This is a season two, remember, that's so compact and congested because of coronavirus. If this were a normal season, I don't think he would have sat out any of those games. And I think we'd be sitting here saying that he would have played 
every game and probably have had two or three more goals because of that. Uh, and I agree, Jake. I think because of that too, especially non-Bundesliga, non-Bayern Munich fans might not know much about some of the other players or pay attention to as much of the players like we do, you know, to exhaustive detail. So they might uh, completely overlook players like Thomas Muller, Serge Gnabry, Leroy Sané. They shouldn't. They best check us out and they need to learn <laughs> to be respecting these players and giving them the credit. But I think that's just, uh, you know, a natural side effect of people who don't necessarily follow this league, whether it's loosely or, or, or semi, semi-close uh, or whatever, I think they just see Lewandowski, the numbers he's producing. So it's natural that, you know, they would only look at him and not anybody else or like us where we can fine tune and say, hey, we even need to give credit to a guy like Boateng. We thought he'd be gone by now and look at how well he has played. Uh, it's unfortunate he has an injury now, but, you know, for us, it's one thing for everybody else who's not engulfed in the Bayern Munich or Bundesliga world. It's, it's one thing. Uh, and to kind of tie the question together, I think... Erling Haaland, just the one thing going against him as far as us potentially being better off with him instead of Lewandowski is he's so young. I mean, we've seen Lewandowski do this for what feels like 20 years, but obviously isn't quite that. Not only for Bayern, but for Dortmund as well. So he's got a lot to prove, I should say, if he wants to be compared to Lewandowski. I know people are doing this till they're blown to the face already. And, you know, we've already kind of written a semi-satire piece about when Hansi Flick said anything is possible, uh, I don't think Holland would be coming to Bayern at any time in the near future, perhaps even the distant future. But I kind of agree with, with Flick. I mean, God knows where the, where the hell he's going to line up in a couple of years time or whatever it may be. He's got a contract, I believe until 2023 and pretty much everybody who's everybody as far as top European clubs wants him. So, you know, I think that's entirely separate conversation without discrediting him at all. I think he's unbelievable and unbelievable talent. You know, I love the highlights of him absolutely rinsing PSG in that first leg of the Champions League last year. Unfortunately, the PSG players trolled his celebration after they won the second leg in one of the first Geisterspieler matches of last year in the Champions League. But you know what? We got a little bit of good revenge on PSG in a certain match in August for them. So that's what I'll rest my case on. And with that, we will move to the next question, which Jake kind of semi-ties in to this one. And it comes from at Sam Green, 1972. Should we invest more in young strikers or a potential replacement to Lewandowski, say, five years down the line? Yeah, I think that investment in youth is probably one of the best ways to keep dynasties alive. You saw that with Jamal Musiala, right, who just got himself a major contract, keeping him here for five years until 2026, right? So, of course, we need to go out and find striking talent. I would argue German striking talent, right, because... Every single German team needs to be finding the next great Miroslav Klose-esque German striker because, dear Lord, that's someone we need right now. Uh, the German national team doesn't have it, and that needs to be fixed very, very soon. Um, but yeah, I think Bayern has the finances to either cultivate that next young striker or to buy outright that next young striker. So I would prefer for it to be one of our own, but 
yeah, I mean, there are many ways to go about this. Uh, five years down the line is a bit long, but if we can find somebody who's like 15 that you think is going to get there, then yeah, I'm not going to be the one that tells Byron to not try and find somebody good. Uh, yeah, that's, that's all I have on that. Of course we should start investing in the future, right? Investing in the future is something great clubs like Byron should always be doing, considering they have the money to constantly be in that position. So, yeah, I don't think that Byron haven't been doing that. I'll even add that. I don't think that Byron have decided that they're going to phone it in on their youth academy building. So just because we haven't heard of anybody yet doesn't mean that they aren't there. doesn't mean that they're not going to develop into something fantastic. Kylian Mbappe's don't get born overnight. Like, they need development. They need time. So... I imagine that uh, the people over at the Sabino Strasa know exactly what they're doing and that they are trying to do something, as you are suggesting there. Sam Green, 1972. Jake, when I asked this question, and before I even finished talking, in my head, I could just hear, uh, you know, like a chugga, 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 chugga. And in my head, it was Chuck standing and conducting the hashtag ARP train with a bucket full of his hashtag Timo tears <laughs> this is exactly what I pictured when I asked this question our very own Chuck Smith who is the sole and chief architect of the hashtag ARP train for our very own Fita ARP uh, and was also a very huge advocate of trying to get Timo Werner to Bayern Munich obviously he wound up going to Chelsea in the Premier League and is now playing under Thomas Tuchel uh, <laughs> that was just the first thing that popped into my head and Jake, I have to agree with you. I think the long-term plan, especially since this person referenced the timeline of five years, um, I think the long-term plan naturally would be to get a top-caliber striker in from somewhere when they do have to come and replace Lewandowski when he's inevitably on his way out. He said numerous times that he would like to retire. Uh, well, I don't know if retire would be the right word, but move to the MLS uh, somewhere in Los Angeles to end his career, his playing career at least. So I think naturally if we're going to lose a player like that, the investment uh, in a top quality striker to replace him will be there. And I think that's 100% the plan from Bayern's front office. And to kind of uh, continue on that, Jake, like you were talking about our youth development, our youth academy, I think Bayern Munich is one of the best in the world as far as youth development, you know, and placing enough emphasis on our, on our youth academy. You know, we spent all this money and all this time revamping our youth campuses and I think uh, it, it's it's shown quite well for the club as far as uh, the return and investment on players that wind up going on loan whether it's elsewhere in the Bundesliga or Germany in the two Liga or the dry Liga or you know elsewhere in Europe I, I think there's players in Bayern's youth system and Bayern's reserves that have shown a lot of promise and you know who's to say that a lot of these players aren't going to come up and you know be prominent players for Bayern senior squad or somewhere in the Bundesliga, you know, guys like perhaps Fita Arp if his fortunes turn around, uh, Quasi Wright, we know him before he did quite well for Bayern's reserves, got a couple of shouts in the first team, I believe under Jep Heinkes before he wound up going to, I believe it was Holland uh, to play. Um, Len Yastrzemski has played quite well for Bayern Munich's reserves this season so you know there's a lot of possibilities there and Jake as you mentioned Jamal Musiala just getting a nice new contract uh, and he's possessed the ability to play a number of different positions whether it's a deeper lying in the midfield central attacking midfielder wide attacking midfielder so I think the promise is there but 
realistically, as you had said, and, you know, as I have just been speaking about, I think the long-term goal is to get, you know, a, a natural top quality replacement for Lewandowski, whether it be someone like Erling Haaland down the line or someone else from the Bundesliga or wherever it may be. But Jake, 100% have to agree with you. I fully trust Bayern's board and, you know, Bayern's hierarchy for getting those decisions right. I think our history has shown that we've done a fantastic job at staying on top of that and making the right decisions. I completely agree with that. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will finish off the rest of your questions that you sent in to us, so stay with us. Welcome back. Now, Tommy, hit me with the remaining questions. What's the first one you got? This one's going to be fun, Jake, so you're going to have to be ready for this. And this one comes from at Paterman24, and they ask, get ready for this, should we have kept hold of Renato Sanchez? I feel like we really should have kept him based on his performances in league on. He could definitely have a stronger impact than some of our current midfield subs. I can hear Chuck Smith screaming his head off right now. Uh, here is my answer. No. A hard, emphatic no. Ladies and gentlemen, let us remember what Renato Sanchez did in the final months of his time. At Bayern Munich, he did nothing but complain about the lack of playing time that he got, including doing so right after a demonstrative win where he was able to get onto the field, maybe for not as long as he wanted, but he ran and complained to the press right after, I think, like a 3-1 or a 4-1 win that he deserved to get more playing time, right? And we should also consider the current state of Bayern's midfield, right? Renato Sanchez is doing well in Ligue 1, and I'm happy that he is doing well, right? But do you think that he is good enough to supplant Thomas Müller, Joshua Kimmich, or Leon Goretzka, right? Because... It's not a question of whether or not he'd be able to replace somebody like Corentin Tolisso. Like, I would love Renato Sanchez now over Corentin Tolisso. But Renato Sanchez wanted starting time more than anything else. So the basic question that you have to ask yourself here is whether or not Renato Sanchez would be starting over Müller or Kimmich or Goretzka, and I say no for all three of them. But you also have to keep in mind one final point that I will be making about this. I don't think Renato Sanchez becomes as good as he has been with Lille if he doesn't have that change of scenery. I do not think that he would be good enough at Bayern, or as good as he is now if he stayed at Bayern. He needed to go to a team that would guarantee him starting time at a high level, and Lille was that exact team that was able to do that for him. And look at where he is now. He might be going off and winning the Ligue 1 title with Lille and with Timothy Weah of uh, the United States, among many other players, right? I am happy that he is able to do that. But it was clear that he wanted out of Bayern Munich, and it was a good thing that Bayern let him go. And I think he became a better player once he moved to Lille. So my answer is no. I'm glad Bayern sold him, but I'm also glad that he's doing well with Lille, because I do not think he'd be doing nearly as well if he stuck with this Bayern team. Yeah, Jake, as you mentioned, Lille currently two points ahead of PSG in the league on standings, which nobody would have anticipated, but I completely agree. I think if 
the longer Renato Sanchez had stayed at Bayern, the more uh, you know controversy there would have been, the more ridiculous stories that we would have to write there would have been. The thing that sticks out in my mind is I don't recall whether it was in the build-up to... I believe it was in between the 1819 and the 1920 season because I just remember writing a lot of stories uh, for BFW that like Nico Kovac had sat down with Renato Sanchez and kind of really settled him down and said, you know, look, you, we know the quality that you have. You've shown it before. We know that you can perform for us. Just keep doing it. You know, stay with it believe in me as your manager and the time will come and they had several conversations kind of in that vein and the minutes just never came right he hardly ever played and I believe it was in like a preseason match or something like that I, I, I might be getting my timeline a little bit mixed up but it was a, a preseason match uh, an open friendly where fans were able to come I believe when they were in Spain somewhere or perhaps it was a Tegernsey, the Forrest Jake, I'm butchering that. I know your German pronunciation is a little bit better than mine. But he was essentially like yelling on the bench, you know, just kind of making a mockery, saying, oh, you know, only one or one more week or one more game I have to play for Bayern before it's all over. Just kind of saying ridiculous stuff like that. And it just never boded well for him. And it seems like that wasn't the first occasion and that that was just only one of many occasions, uh, you know, of a like nature during his time at Bayern. It's just the Renato Sanchez under, you know, Ancelotti versus Jupp Heynckes versus Niko Kovac. It just seems like it was just never the right fit. In just everything always seemed off about it. I don't even know if I can, like, put the right terminology to it or say the right phrases or, you know, say the right things. But, you know, I know what Chuck would be saying if he was here on this episode with us. It just never seemed like it was going to work for him and uh i obviously had a little bit of sympathy but just the things he said you never want to put a target on your back like that especially for the press or for the media if you're trying to get into a team and, and get some consistent minutes but yeah thankfully he's found his uh, footing in france and league on and hopefully they can push right until the end against uh, psg and try and nip them out for the league on title because that would be quite a story for a multitude of reasons. But nonetheless, that's where Jake and I both stand on that. Chuck, you can comment in on the accompanying post with your thoughts if you want to be a all-caps rant. By all means, go for it. So, Jake, the next question comes from at Kyle Melchior. Melchior, I apologize if I pronounced that wrong. And they ask, who should back up Manuel Neuer if Alexander Nubel goes on loan, especially since Ron Torben Hoffman picked up a serious knee injury similar to the one Joshua Kimmich had suffered earlier this year. Uh, surely we'd have to go for somebody, and you know they just add they wouldn't want to rely on a second-team keeper to back up Neuer. You know who I'm going to say, Tom. Do I? Yeah, you do. Is it someone yeah. who made bad mistakes in a Champions yes, it League is. final? It's it's a man that you know and love very well. Loris Karius is my answer. And I mean this with all seriousness because Loris Karius has been having a great season at Union Berlin. And he's been linked to the backup job at Bayern Munich. So I don't think he would cost terribly much. And if he's willing to leave that consistent starting job at Union to come to Bayern and be a backup, I would be more than willing to have him. But 
I have a more concerning question, right? Oliver Kahn earlier today said that he has no intentions of sending Alexander Nubu out on loan this year, and that terrifies me. How can you not look at this kid and think that he doesn't... How can you look at him and think that he does not need starting time, playing time of any kind, right? You saw it right from the moment Alexander Nubel uh, was announced that he was coming to Bayern and David Wagner uh, benched him at Schalke uh, and he lost his form from that point on, right? He seemed a bit nervous, a bit uh, finicky in goal, right? You need somebody like Alexander Nubel, a young kid, on your roster, but you need him to be well-developed. And he's not going to get that development time. He's not going to get that high quality of development if he's playing for the second team, right? He's not going to get that if he's playing a role on the bench but never really coming on. The kid needs to go out on loan. He needs to do it this summer. He needs a full year of playing time because he's not going to be the heir apparent to Manuel Neuer if we just leave him here incubating and festering until we actually need him, watching his talent slip away. We need to have that talent be cultivated now, and if it's doing it for another team... That's fine, just as long as it's not another Bundesliga team, right? Send him out to a Zweiteliga team. Send him out to, I don't know, like a championship team or a lower-level Premier League side or someone in France, right? Like, he needs to get out. He needs to get starting time now. And I am appalled that Bayern continually look at his situation and say that he doesn't. Please send this kid out on loan and sign Karius in the meantime, as a backup option, because he hasn't been looking that bad, and you don't need another Manuel Neuer to back up Manuel Neuer. If you want somebody who's good right now, go get Karius, because he's been good right now, and you don't need to develop him or rely on him to become your goalkeeper of the future. It's so crazy with a simple question, like how many moving parts there are, right? So, Larice Karius has been getting a run-in at Union Berlin, in the absence of Andre Luta for personal reasons, but it's assumed that he will be returning to the starting lineup once he's back. And Jake, as you mentioned, I think it was just prior to kickoff on Saturday between Bayern and Dortmund that Oliver Kahn said, you know, we don't have any plans of loaning out Alexander Nubel when he had been linked last week in kicker with a reunion with Nico Kovac at AS Monaco. And it's like this uh, kind of standoff between Stefan Bex, who is uh, Alexander Nubel's agent, and Oliver Kahn and potentially Bayern's front office because he signed a contract that stipulated he would get at least 10 matches at FC Bayern. And obviously the likelihood of that happening since he's only featured twice, once when we had already qualified and won the group in the Champions League. It was the 1-1 draw against Atletico Madrid. And then once in the first round of the DFB Pokal against FC Durin are the only two appearances he's made. And yes, he's had some injury troubles, which on those occasions, Ron Torben Hoffman has been the backup to Neuer. But he's clearly not going to get 10 matches. So 
from that point of view, I think a reunion with Niko Kovac where he would get some starting minutes uh, on a team that Kovac is doing very, very well with. We have to remember where AS Monaco finished in the league in standings last season, and right now I believe they're in the fourth spot in European qualification, and fifth spot is a, is a ways off from them, if I recall correctly. I don't have the, the table in front of me right now, but at the same time, I wouldn't want to cross Oliver Kahn, and I would want to take his words, you know, with a bit more weight since he's going to be stepping in as the CEO once Karl Heinz Rummenigge leaves. So it's such a tricky thing because it, what, what keeper that wants to play consistently is going to agree to be Manuel Neuer's backup? And that's the that's the tricky part, right, Jake? Like at FC Bayern until Manuel Neuer is no longer a part of this team or he's on his way out and his minutes are going to be managed, he is the number one goalkeeper, right, so to speak. Uh, per se, like, you're not going to get him out of the lineup for the big matches. So you just basically have to accept the fact that you're going to play in cup matches. Uh, God forbid if Neuer gets hurt. Uh, but from Byron's perspective, too, the other side of that, you have to have that, right? You have to have a decent caliber replacement if that sort of thing does happen. And it did happen, uh, right, under Carlo Ancelotti, or excuse me, under Nico Kovac and Jupp Heynckes. And I believe um, under Pep Guardiola, too, he had had that ankle injury in the past as well. So very, very tricky thing. And obviously now Hoffman has the knee capsule injury, or the, excuse me, the medial meniscus injury that he had operation on. Uh, over the weekend so you have to find a balance like do you want basically a Bayern reserve goalkeeper temporarily and sometimes acting as Neuer's backup do you trust that keeper to play in big matches if they need to step in or do you want to bring in a higher caliber uh, backup goalkeeper because you're uh, there's not a, enough assurance there and you know there's been injuries at the goal for the goalkeepers and Bayern Munich's reserve side so it's as I said Jake so many moving parts but um, I'm going to take Khan on his word. I don't know how they're going to get that figured out or how they're going to hash that out because maybe in the back of Nubel's mind, he's just very thankful to be training day in and day out with Manuel Neuer, and that's how he's been viewing this type of thing. But it's so hard to, to see him being happy with just like, he's like, is he going to play again this season if Neuer doesn't get hurt? Like, I highly doubt it. So I know I've just kind of gone on a rant. I haven't really answered the question, but... As much as it pains me, those those memories of that nice spring day at a Liverpool bar in Washington, D.C., watching the 2018 Champions League final, I think Karius would be a very viable option uh, for a decent price to back up Manuel Neuer, but it's just a matter of if that will materialize. So time will tell. I mean, there's a lot of football left to be played. A lot can happen. So, so who knows? I'm going to take Oliver Kahn on his word. Uh, so... Newball, I think, stays. He'll continue to be the backup. Maybe next season he can get some more minutes and uh, they can figure out a way to get him some more time. But with that said, Jake, we just got to round out this last question and then that's it. And so, Jake, the last question comes from at Inc 11 and they ask, what does the contrast of Bayern Munich's remaining fixtures versus RB Leipzig's remaining fixtures look like? Here's the rest of their schedule, right? They have this game against Liverpool, right? And for the rest of the time, they have... Eintracht, Armenia Bielefeld, Bayern, Bremen, Hoffenheim, Köln, Stuttgart, a to-be-determined game in the DFB Pokal, so it's probably the winner of Jan Regensburg and Werder Bremen. Uh, then Dortmund, Wolfsburg, and Union Berlin. 
right? So allow me to contextualize that, right? They have a tough game against Eintracht, an easy game against Bielefeld, a tough game against Bayern, an easy game against Bremen, Hoffenheim, Köln, and Stuttgart. But their final three games are tough. Dortmund, Wolfsburg, and Union Berlin. None of those are easy games. None of those are cakewalks for uh, for Leipzig. So I imagine that they will probably pull those together, but it will be tough. It will be a tough time for them, right? Now, if Leipzig somehow find a way to come back and beat Liverpool, now it's an entirely different wrinkle because they're in three competitions. Right, they're in the Bundesliga, they're in the Pokal, they're in the Champions League, right? Whereas Bayern is only in two, so they might be a little more tired. They might not be able to keep the pressure on. Meanwhile, here is Bayern's scenario. Game against uh, Werder Bremen, then Lazio, uh, and most likely Bayern will be moving on in the Champions League, so we have to consider that as well. Then they have... Stuttgart, Leipzig, Union Berlin, Wolfsburg, Leverkusen, Mainz, Mönchengladbach, Freiburg, Augsburg. So, easy game against Bremen, easy game against Stuttgart, easier game against Stuttgart. Tough game against Leipzig. Interesting. I, I don't know whether or not it's tough, but it'll be interesting. Against Union Berlin. Tough game against Wolfsburg. Interesting game against Leverkusen. Easy game against Mainz. Unlike Leipzig, their final three games in the month of May are a lot easier. So, again, Leipzig's final three are Dortmund, Wolfsburg, and Union. Bayern's last three are Mönchengladbach, Freiburg, and Augsburg. So those will be fun and interesting, right? So for reference, as of now, for Leipzig, again, Dortmund are in sixth, Wolfsburg are in third as of right now, and Union Berlin are in seventh. Mönchengladbach for Bayern are in tenth, Freiburg are in eighth, Augsburg are in thirteenth. Whether or not that translates into them being winners, I don't know. I don't have a magic ball that allows me to see to the end of May and see who lifts the Meisterschale. But both of them seem like they have relatively cakewalk Aprils outside of that first weekend game where they play each other. But it looks like Leipzig's schedule overall is easier up until May. Right, they do not have to play as tough of a schedule in April. Right now, when I say cakewalk games in April, I'm comparing it to Bayern, comparing to what Bayern has done. Right, so I don't think there's a single game between now and the end of the season where Bayern is pegged to lose. Right, that Leipzig game, I can imagine that they're pegged to draw. And Union is good, and Wolfsburg is good, and Leverkusen is good, but I don't imagine that Bayern would be pegged to lose to any of them. So at this point, that game on April 3rd is really the one that everyone needs to be looking at because that's going to be the one that decides the future of the tournament, one that decides the future of the league title this year. 
that is going to be the one, right? Because the way that I see it, we could be in this exact same position from now until the end of the season, right? Wherein Bayern and Leipzig are really like three points off of each other or less, maybe. Like, they're incredibly close. And it might come down to whoever wins this game on Saturday, April 3rd, as to who becomes the winner of the entire tournament, of the entire league, of all of the Meisterschallers. So, that's the schedule. I don't know if that necessarily answers your question. Uh, I think Leipzig have an easier schedule, but I don't think Bayern is pegged to lose in any of their games coming up. So I could see it going either way. Uh, Tom, I don't know if you remember the exact schedules that I pumped out, but what do you think of my assessment? No, I, I have them open myself as well. And I think that on paper... RB Leipzig does have the easier schedule, but I would add that the phrase on paper probably just is virtually non-existent this season with how crazy it is and how crazy packed it is with all matches and all competitions and you know everything to be taken in consideration. And I do remember reading relatively recently, I don't remember what I was writing about, but uh, I they had made mention. I think it might have been Bill had made mention about how you know if certain results go a certain way, then Bayern could be crowned champions by winning in Leipzig. Obviously, that won't happen now because this was probably a month, two months ago. I was reading this, but they made a point of saying that at the time, uh, I believe Union Berlin might have been the only difference because remember they were in the top five for quite a few weeks in the Bundesliga. Essentially, the article is saying that the top six clubs play each other more than Bayern plays anyone in the top six, which will inevitably come and work in Bayern's favor because they're going to be taking points off of one another, right? Because everybody seems to forget you play everybody twice. There's no way around that. You have to do that every season. So that's one thing that will be playing into Bayern's favor. But Jake, as I mentioned, I think on paper, RB Leipzig does have the easier schedule, um, but it's so difficult to predict. They still have that tricky uh, DFB Pokal semifinal. They still have one more chance against Liverpool to turn it around. If they do figure out a way to turn it around and overturn that deficit, then th as you mentioned, that's just another competition for them to worry about with not as deep of a squad uh, without discrediting Julian Nagelsmann and the way he's able to tack tap in Excuse me, to the depth that he has. But also, Jake, from a Bayern perspective, I'm looking at this... You know, looking at the matches, Bayern VfB Stuttgart, if I recall correctly, we won 3-1 in the Hinrunde, but they scored first. Bayern RB Leipzig from the Hinrunde, obviously that was one of the crazy 3-3 draws that we had. Bayern Union Berlin, 1-1 draw. Wolfsburg Bayern, we barely squeaked away with the win. But I think it was 2-1, perhaps doing Bayern a little bit of a service and not giving Wolfsburg enough credit. We did not look great in that game. Obviously... Was it 2-1, Jake, or 3-1 over Bayer Leverkusen thanks to the Jonathan Ta error right at the end where Kimmich had won the ball, barely squeaked by in Leverkusen. Mainz Bayern, as we know in the Hinrunde, Mainz had scored early on, forcing us down. I, I was listening to the Stylecast on my way home from work today, Jake, actually, and I think it's 13 times this season Bayern has gone down 1-0, which is just ridiculous. I know that you had uh, mentioned in the past and been very interested in the fact that we always seem to go down and then turn it around in the second half, <laughs> which does seem to be the case. People in Germany, I think they have the, the phrase Bayern Dussel 
for those who aren't fans of Bayern, basically just Bayern always finding a way to get it done, whether it be a little bit of luck combined with a little bit of skill or whatever it may be. They just always seem to find a way, and then glad back in there. Obviously, they're one of the teams to have beaten us this season. Freiburg versus Bayern, we barely squeaked out with a 2-1 win against them at the Allianz Arena. I remember them hitting the crossbar late on. It was all hands on deck. And then Bayern Augsburg, we only squeaked by with a 1-0 win. So our schedule isn't that easy either. You know, like who's t- like I said, the phrase on paper just shouldn't even apply anymore because some of the things that are happening this season are just absolutely ridiculous. And then we always obviously have to worry about uh, the latter stages of the Champions League if we don't absolutely implode against Lazio and like too. But as you mentioned, Jake, it's all going to come down to April 3rd, isn't it? If there's a winner there, we're going to have a little bit more clarity as to who's going to be in pole position and who's going to be the odds-on favorite to win the league. Uh, so let's see. I can't wait for April 3rd, and, you know, let's see what happens. And with that though, with that said, those are all the questions. Thanks again, guys, for sending those in. The quality and the quantity, absolutely fantastic, which we've all come to expect from all of the BFW followers and BPW listen listeners. So again, thank you. Yeah, again, thank you all for submitting your questions. So, this is what the week looks like in German soccer. Tuesday, second leg, Borussia Dortmund versus Sevilla at the Signale Juna Park. Wednesday, Liverpool playing Leipzig uh, in Budapest again. Also, a Bundesliga match between Armenia Bielefeld and Werder Bremen. Friday... Uh, we have 13th place Augsburg against 10th place Borussia Mönchengladbach. Saturday, 7th place Union Berlin play 14th place FC Köln. 17th place Mainz play 8th place uh, Freiburg. 3rd place uh, Wolfsburg take on last place Schalke. 12th place Werder Bremen taking on Bayern Munich at first. 6th uh, place Dortmund taking on 15th place Hertha Berlin. Sunday, 5th place Bayer Leverkusen taking on 16th place Armenia Bielefeld. 2nd place RB Leipzig taking on 4th place Eintracht Frankfurt. And 9th place Stuttgart taking on 11th place Hoffenheim. So, that is what we have for you this week. We will be producing an episode of Der Ausblick ahead of Bayern's clash against Werder Bremen this Saturday. So, be sure to look out for that. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening to this episode Please be sure to like, rate, share, subscribe, and download us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your quality audio content. Follow us on Twitter at BavarianFBWorks. Follow me on Twitter at JeffersonFenner. Follow Tom on Twitter at TommyAdam71. And read our fantastic content every single day online at BavarianFootballWorks.com. So once again, thank you all for listening. And until next time, where we preview this game against Werder Bremen that we have at the weekend, we will see you later. Stay safe and stay healthy. Auf Wiedersehen.